We are in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. I'm just going to jump in and begin reading from the text there. We're going to read through uh, to about verse 32. And this is a really talking about the mystery of God's mercy. And I want to flag on that today as we think about his mercy, not only here, but in communion. uh, When we're done, we're going to look at the components of this. He begins by saying to the Gentiles, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written... Uh, and uh, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regarding election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. You know, back around the World War II times, there was a famous uh, trial. It was about the Rosenbergs who had made attempts apparently to betray the U.S. by giving information to the Russians related to the atomic bomb. Uh, We won't go into all the details, but in the trial, uh, we're told this. They were convicted of treason. The judge at the time was Judge Kaufman, and uh, as they were convicted of treason, they were sentenced to death. In the summation at the end of the long and bitter trial, the lawyer for the Rosenbergs made this appeal and said adamantly, Your Honor, what my clients asked for is justice, because he felt he was proving that they were innocent. Judge Kaufman replied calmly, The court has given what you ask, and that's justice. What you really want is mercy, but that is something the court has no right to give. Now, one of the things that's difficult is that when we look at the sinfulness of humanity, it is absolutely deserving of the judgment and the wrath and the justice of God. It is something that we do not appreciate in all measure because we tend to think that we're basically good people and because of the imprint of the image of God, we have the capacity relative to one another to do great acts of kindness and to help one another, to do acts of benevolence and, and to show forgiveness and mercy when we are given the opportunity. But when it comes to this idea of mercy, we at times run into this process that parents often run into with their kids, is that that's why parents are there, is to give us second, third, fourth, and fifth, and innumerable number of breaks, regardless of how bad our kids act. Now, sometimes we can get in that as Christians, is that we think that we are entitled to God's mercy, rather than simply be grateful that we are recipients of God's mercy. Now, some of the problem is that we don't know what these things are, how to define these things. I've uh, talked a lot about God's grace, and I told uh, someone a while ago that I think there's very few of us that really grasp the sense of what does God's grace really look like. But this passage, as you noticed in the text, is, focuses a, a lot on God's mercy. 
And we don't talk as much about God's mercy, but let me try to give you a basic definition. Uh, mercy is a little bit like the New Testament term for paraclete, it, the word for the Holy Spirit. He's the one that comes alongside, but it has such a magnificent orb of words that describe that ministry the Spirit of, has to us that it's really hard to find an English word that really captures what a paraclete is. Well, the same problem is with mercy. There are dozens of different words that are used in our English language to try to capture within the scriptures the nature of mercy. But in its most simplest term, I will propose to you that God's mercy is the kindness of God to respond to us when we are most vulnerable. That mercy, God's mercy, is the kindness of God to respond to us when we are most vulnerable. I remember one uh, doing a growth study with a friend of mine one time, and one of the words that's very much closely integrated to mercy is compassion. And one of the Old Testament stories is when Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses in this basket reed floating among the reeds in the water, and Pharaoh had pronounced a death sentence on all these newborn Jewish Hebrew babies. And when she found and discovered Moses, as he was then named, He was as vulnerable and as exposed as anybody could be. He had no capacity to defend himself. And if Pharaoh's daughter had complied with her father's edict to destroy all the, the male children from the Hebrews, all she had to do is put her hand on the basket and push it under the water and drown him. And there's nothing he could have done to protect himself. And the word there is used, it's a word closely related to mercy, and it was like she had compassion on him. And the the definition is a bit generic, but that's the picture I want you to have in mind when you think of mercy, is that mercy is where God, or even us, responds to people when they are most vulnerable. We'll often see it in the scriptures related to sin and judgment that's going to be placed upon them. We'll see it in in communion uh, in the Old Testament, how God portrayed mercy. But the idea of mercy and compassion are kind of bedfellows. They describe this sense that when people are most exposed, when they are most vulnerable, and they have no chance to defend or protect themselves, that's where mercy engages the life of others to rescue them. And so as we begin on this, I want you to note as we go through the text that he says certain things. And Paul begins in verse 25 by saying, for you, I do not want you, Gentiles, because of what he's already talked about, and he calls them brethren, so he's not doing this in attack mode, he's doing it as a brother, trying to talk to them about having a godly perspective of their privilege they've been given, to be, uh, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation. So the first thing I want to simply suggest to you as we walk through this text is one of the great uh, realities of mercy is that it keeps us from being arrogant. The word wisdom could easily be illustrated. It's not a bad term uh, in the scriptures. In Matthew 7, 24, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is a person with wisdom or the person who has understanding. And so in there, it's a profoundly positive statement. It's also used in Luke 16, 8, when the master praised the unjust steward because he acted wisely. So there's a certain accommodation for wisdom, but except Paul here says, listen, I don't want you to be wise in your own eyes. The danger is that wisdom from God is profoundly helpful. 
But wisdom in our own eyes tends to be arrogance because we tend to compare ourselves with other people, their status with ours, my privilege with their disadvantage. And so Paul wants to say, listen, if you really understand God's mercy, you will do it with a great sense of humility. You will not think that this is just your mental acuity, that you're just more brilliant than they are, and that's why you're in this privilege. And mercy, if does anything, it prevents the idea of arrogance and ignorance. The, the second point that I want to make as we look at this text is that God's mercy is never an entitlement. It is impossible if you take Moses floating in the reeds to say, listen, I deserve mercy. You will have this in the court system where people throw themselves on the mercy of the court because they know that they have no grounds to make any argument to prove that they're innocent. So the idea of mercy is something that I cannot elicit from somebody so much as they have to simply offer it. And I realize there are circumstances in life that uh, would seem to be strange, but for the, the Gentiles here to see themselves as wiser or smarter or they've been able to figure this out above the Jews who didn't would, would be nonsensical. I, there was a story I ran across about a professional diver who uh, spent a lot of his life diving and in his home he had a, an, like an ornament hanging from his chimney and it happened to be an oyster with a piece of paper a little, it looked like a little booklet clamped in between uh, its jaws, if you'd choose to do it that way, but in its shell. And uh, if you asked him what happened and why he hang that, hung it on as, as an ornament, apparently this diver had been diving at sea and he had noticed that this oyster was sitting on the bottom of the seafloor where he was diving and this paper was in there. And it happened to be waterproof or whatever kind of thing. So he dove down and apparently he opened the oyster and looked at this and it happened to be a gospel track. And he read this gospel track and he was so stunned by how impossible it would be for him to run into an oyster with a gospel track in it that down there in the ocean he actually accepted Christ, apparently as the story goes. Well, what Paul is trying to say is, as bizarre as that oyster story sounds, it's almost even more bizarre that God would extend mercy to the Gentiles. There's nothing about the Gentiles that would ingratiate God to say, wow, I really need them as part of my team because we're really missing out. It'd be probably quite the opposite based on Romans. That they're weak, that they're ungodly, that they're enemies of God, they're unrighteous, they're unholy, they, they, they allow their own flesh to drive what works in their life. There's nothing of value in terms of what God would feel obligated to, to reach out in mercy towards unbelievers, especially the Gentiles. But God has. And so the third element is that God's mercies will be extended until the fullness of the Gentiles. He makes this interesting statement that there's a partial hardening on Israel or there's a hardening on part of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And really, the word fullness really means the idea of till completeness. The, the idea looks forward to the idea that, that there, God is gonna work on reaching out to all the different ethnic groups in our global economy and in our global world until all of his purposes fulfill where everybody who he hears the gospel who has not only a chance to hear the gospel but responds to it. When that is completed, there's the inference here that then God's gonna switch gears and then he's going to work to reclaim the people of Israel. 
but there's a sense that God in all of his mercy is taking time out to actually reach out to us. And and there's nothing that would obligate God to do that. And, And so as we consider, it's an act of mercy. It is God saying, I'm looking at all of the Gentiles, as if I can borrow the language, they're as helpless as an infant and they deserve death and I could extinguish them like that, but I'm gonna extend my mercy so that even in that vulnerability, I'm gonna give them hope and the opportunity to become part of my kingdom work. That in itself would be worth some meditating on, to revalue in our own hearts the reality that there's nothing we're entitled to, and God in his mercy looks at us like helpless infants that deserve the death sentence and to be annihilated, and he extends his mercy to us. When we are most vulnerable, he rescues us. There's three things that he talks about. He's gonna talk about God being merciful to Israel. He makes this statement that as you move into verse 26, that all Israel will be saved. Now that's a pretty controversial statement. You get everyone to thinking that the whole of Israel from Abraham on will all be saved. There's another option that says, based on what Paul writes here, that it's only the spiritual Israel, the ones who are elect or called. Uh, it, it's a, I don't wanna get bogged down in the nuances of it, but there seems to be a great redemptive process when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, God is going to move to redeem his people Israel. And he makes some statements that we'll go through in just a second. It was uh, Henry Bosch made, um, uh, had an interesting story when the English streamer Stella was wrecked on, uh, off the coast. 12 women were put into a lifeboat and they didn't have oars. They were just kind of dumped in there and pushed off so that they could possibly survive. But they didn't have any oars. They couldn't get anywhere. They were completely driven by the waves and the wind at the time and they couldn't do anything to stop it. One of the women, uh, Margaret Williams, happened to be a believer and she tried to encourage the other women by saying, listen, you need to trust in the Lord and she tried to get them to sing hymns. Now she was the only one that knew them all so she had this uh, really strong, powerful voice. So all through the night she kind of serenaded them and sang all these hymns to try to comfort them. Well apparently sometime late into the evening or early morning, there were some rescue boats that came out, but the fog was so thick they couldn't see anybody, but they could hear her singing. And so as they were, she was singing, they finally figured out where she was, navigated over to where they were, and rescued the women. It was not because of their skill or their ingenuity or their creativity or their inventiveness, how they could save themselves, but it was simply the idea of her singing these praises to the Lord that God, as it were, was merciful enough to send a ship to rescue them. Part of what we have to understand is that mercy is directed to those who cannot save themselves. Mercy is directed to those who cannot fix their own problem. Mercy is directed and aimed at those who don't think they need the help. Those who think that they still have the ingenuity to cope and to manage and to solve their own problems, that they're basically good enough, those are the ones that won't receive mercy. Because those are the ones who still think that they're capable of saving themselves. And so as you move through this text, he makes some really interesting statements. He says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them that I will take away their sins. It's actually a quote from Isaiah 59 
where God promises that there's going to be this deliverer, which I believe refers to the Messiah, his second advent, when he returns, he is going to establish and reclaim his people. And it tells us very simply that he is going to be one who uh, comes from Zion, from the city of David. It really talks about this Davidic king who uh, Jesus is sort of the descendant of as you look at biblical scriptures. And so he is going to be the one that saves him and he's going to remove ungodliness. It's interesting, you need a deliverer to remove the ungodliness because they can't remove it themselves. They're plagued with this toxic reality that they are ungodly and they're sinners. And then he talks about renewing my covenant with them when I take away their sins. If you go back to Isaiah 59, he'll talk about my spirit will come and I will renew and put my law in their hearts and I will renew them so that they are in this perfect relationship with me. Not because of anything they did, but because of the God's promises to his people Israel. Even though they're in a hardening, that they're in a, in a state right now where God is not using them as the primary vehicle to reach the world. That they're still, in a sense, the apple of his eye. They're still part of God's purposes. Now, sometimes we have to pause and think about that because we all have people that we love and care about that seem to have a hardening on their heart. I mean, I can tell you the story of my dad, and I've told you many times that, frankly, while he was a strong moralist and went to a church, it wasn't a church that believed in the gospel. When I talked to my dad about the Bible, he always said, well, I thought the Bible was simply a moral code to structure society so we can get along. The question he couldn't answer was, well, okay, dad, well, if that's all that the Bible is, what happens to you when you die? And five days before he was uh, on the road to his deathbed because of cirrhosis of the liver, a nurse walked in and, and shared the gospel with him, and apparently he trusted Christ. And so he had hardened his heart all of his life, and then God in his mercy sent this angel called a nurse to share the gospel on his deathbed. And it's one of those stories that it's really hard to make up because it's almost impossible to believe where God in his mercy reached out to him when he had no resources that were going to solve his own problem. He had nothing else to anchor hope for the future. That there's nothing he could do to solve his own problem. And God in his mercy reached out to him through a nurse who shared the gospel and he trusted Christ. That's the idea of mercy. And, And so he's not only merciful to Israel, he's not only merciful to the Gentiles, but God is merciful because of his unchanging purpose. He says here very clearly, from the standpoint of the gospel, Israel are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. So somewhere in this, God has this ability to not only harden Israel and set them aside, as it were, as as a kingdom of priests, he can reach out to the Gentiles and still maintain his promises that he made. The the gifts probably are not talking about individual gifts that you and I would exercise, like speaking or singing or whatever kind of thing. He's really talking about Romans 9, 4 and 5, where he talked about the gifts that he had given to Israel that they were given the privilege as the adoption of sons and that the Messiah was descended from them and he gave them the law, the special revelation to have this unique relationship with God. He entered into a covenant with them. The patriarchs were all all part of this makeup and the gifts that God had chosen to give this particular people to raise them up to be his 
representatives in the world. It wasn't because they were smarter than all the other nations. It wasn't because they had more ingenuity, more creativity, more technology, more money or resources. It wasn't because of any of that. In fact, the scriptures say, you were probably the least of all the nations. And I rose you up in order to glorify myself, not impress others with what you can do. And so in all of this, God takes these gifts that he's given to Israel, and yet now through the gospel, he, we, we discover that he can keep his promises, his purpose, his calling, is not only true for Israel, but also the Gentiles. Ephesians talks about this. In him before the creation of the world, God chose us in Christ. It's a staggering reality for us to understand the magnitude of God's purpose in eternity and then how it works out in the grind and the toxicity of human, human sin and disobedience. But God is merciful because of his unchanging purpose. But then God is merciful to all humanity. I want you to notice that in these last several verses, how many times he uses the word disobedience. In verse 30, he says, you Gentiles were disobedient to God. You received mercy because of Israel's disobedience. Verse 31, because of their disobedience, you might be shown mercy. Verse 32, God has closed everyone into this, he's closed them all into being disobedient. Now, when I look at that, probably the easiest way to think about it is that that's a really elaborate way to capture what Romans 3.23 says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All deserve justice. All deserve God's punishment. All fall under the wrath of God. There's nobody. We are all like helpless infants under the judgment of, of a God who must carry out his holiness and righteousness and his justice, and there's nothing that can prevent him from doing that except for his mercy. And we know his mercy as it's captivated in the reality of his son who came and suffered and was tortured and brutalized and crucified so that God's wrath landed on him rather than us. But believe me, it doesn't automatically just transfer over because Jesus died. The Bible's pretty clear. Only those who receive Christ, who believe in him, does he give the right to become children of God. It doesn't mean whether if I go to church, then that shows that I believe in him. It doesn't mean if I'm a good person that I get to go to heaven. It doesn't mean if I simply uh, try to be nice to everybody and a good citizen that I get to go to heaven. It has nothing to do with this. We all fall under the wrath and the judgment of God and it's only because he extends his mercy to us that we have any hope of eternity. And so as we begin to work through this, his statement is to say, listen, whether it's Jews or Gentiles, it doesn't matter where you live in the world, every single person lives under the wrath of a holy and righteous uh, God. Now, I want you to notice the nature of disobedience. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The first step of obedience to the Son is to believe in him. It's not to believe in his teachings. It's not to believe necessarily in his miracles. 
I, I run into all kinds of people who go, well, Jesus, yeah, I, I kind of believe in God. I like, I like the golden rule. That, that one comes out, that gets nauseating, frankly, but it's, you know, do unto others as they would. Okay, that's nice. Doesn't understand the context of the Lord's Prayer, but that's okay, it's nice. But that's the culture we live in. People love to be eclectic. They pick this little truth from this religion and this little truth from this religion. And so I honor all religions because I like to take some nuggets of truth that are helpful and practical and fairly utilitarian in in different areas of life. So I like to honor everybody. Well, Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's no such thing as being nice to all different religions. The the idea here is that God has made his son the one who absorbed the wrath of his righteousness and his justice, and if you don't accept the fact that Christ took that punishment for yourself, you're not under, you, you have no safety net. You're still in harm's way. You're still, and you'll notice that's what the text says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on them. It's not like, hey, if I don't do the right things, I fall under God's. It's like, you know, if I drive down the road at 80 miles an hour and the, and, uh, the officer stops me and says, have you ever broken the speed limit before? And I lie to him and say, no. And then he says, well, you've done it once today, so now I'm giving you a ticket. You've broken the law. I think that's the way a lot of people think their relationship with God is. Is that if, you know, these things are either really insignificant, I haven't really broken the law really badly, so this is, you know, the only really significant crime that I've committed, and it's not a felony or anything, so, you know, I think I'm pretty good. If God's really a God of love, then he'll accept me because I'm doing the best that I can. And God says, that's not the issue. The issue is your relationship to his son. That's why we can say with absolute certainty that someone like a Marty Gorse, the moment they passed here, went immediately into the presence of their heavenly father, free from all the suffering and the shackles of this life. When Mickey Powell passed away this morning, she stepped out of the, 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 the frustration of living in a body that was being wrecked by cancer and stepped into the glorious presence of her Savior to see him face to face. There's no other solution other than the person of Jesus. I I was thinking of how this touches our life. And my mind went to Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you remember the story, Jesus talks to a rich lawyer who, uh, what do I have to do to gain eternal life? And he talks about keeping the law and those kinds of things. And, and, and Jesus basically says, you've got to love God and love your neighbor. So just trying to justify himself, he says, well, who's my neighbor? It's always kind of neat when you think you got the answer figured out before you ask Jesus. That really always turns into a bad deal when someone thinks they've got the right answer. And Jesus then tells him the story of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan that a man, a certain man, was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho and he gets mugged and beaten up and robbed and basically left for dead. They, they don't care. He's just thrown into the ditch and left there. And then he talks about a certain priest who comes down and for doesn't matter the reasons, he looks at this and goes, yeah, I'm not touching this, and so he walks down the other side. Then he talks about a Levite who came by and does the same thing. He sees this man who's just a mess and he's probably got appointments or something, but he hasn't got time for this, so he passes on. And then he talks about a certain Samaritan, and the phrase is, he had compassion on him. 
Was he, he doesn't seem to be any, any entitlements, any obligations that he had at all. Clearly, the Levite and the priest didn't feel any obligation to do anything. And so he had compassion. He had mercy on this man, and he binds up his wounds, puts him on his donkey. He, he takes him to a hospital, as it were, and he pays for him to be looked after. Now, we don't, that's all we're told, but there's the individual that showed mercy to someone who he didn't know, didn't deserve it, didn't feel obligated to it, but mercy reaches out to those, not just with sympathy or empathy, because you can have those and do nothing, but mercy takes action to move alongside people when they're most vulnerable to pick them up and rescue them from their plight. And so as you move through this, you, you discover that even in human terms, mercy is difficult for us because we don't feel any obligation. We don't often feel any duty. We're too busy. We've got our own stuff. This is going to take time out of my day. It's inconvenient. If there's anything that's true about mercy is that it's completely inconvenient because it means I've got to change what I'm doing to respond to the needs of people who probably don't deserve it anyway because they wouldn't have ended up here if they hadn't been so stupid. Right? And so as we think on this, I I want you to think about the fact that if God had that attitude towards us, we would all face a Christless eternity. I mean, think of how inconvenient it is that Christ leaves the perfection of the eternal fellowship of the Godhead and takes to himself flesh and blood in a world that he created amongst creatures that are, are imprinted with his image and he allows himself to be treated like a doormat, the one thing we often refuse to do. You know, I hear that in all kinds of uh, theological discussions. God never wants us to be a doormat. Doormat theology. I, I sometimes have a hard time finding that in the scriptures. But, but he comes down and he sacrifices his life And goes through the shame of being butchered by human beings that he created. So that you and I might be shown mercy by God. Because Christ really becomes God's act of mercy. His wrath falls upon him. So that if we will surrender to God and believe in Jesus, then we can have life. You know, we don't talk a lot about mercy. And when we do, it's kind of sometimes glib. But there's times, and we're going about to do this in terms of communion this morning, so if you have your packets, I'll ask you to try to figure out how to peel the bread out of there. You better start doing that now, because if you don't, you'll be at it for a while. But the, the idea of what we're doing in communion this morning is to remember how merciful God has been to you and I. I, I want you to understand that... W- while we might think we're entitled to it and we're just, it's just common sense and, you know, I grew up in a Christian home and therefore I get all this stuff and, you know, it's easy to take it all for granted. And what I want you to do is spend a minute thinking about how merciful God has been to you. 
Because when we stop appreciating and we lose the value of the fact that, and I want to go back to Moses, that we before a holy God are as vulnerable as an infant in a basket reed who simply needs to have a basket filled with water and he would be within his right to destroy us. He has compassion and mercy to rescue us. 